Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, I don't have any comments, and uh, that's uh, good and bad. So all of you out there, just I know you're loving this series, and I know Mr. Turgeon is really adding a lot of effort into this, and so please comment. We just need a comment. Well, on our last podcast, Grant Turgeon and I finished the program with a discussion of Chapter 21. Now, it's interesting. Uh, Melville titled that chapter, Going Aboard, but really it could have been titled, Elijah the Prophet Returns. And, <laughs> and because the whole chapter is about Elijah the Prophet going after Queequeg and uh, Ishmael as they're trying to get on the ship. So, uh, so anyway, the, I, I thought that's uh, funny. Well, and, and I have to bring up Elijah today. So you get ready for it. We're going to be bringing up Elijah again. Now, for today's podcast, Grant and I want to begin our discussion with Chapter 26. So welcome back, Grant. Thank you very much. It's so good to have you back. Now, Chapter 26 is, is uh, certainly interesting. It is called Knights and Squires. And uh, well, I'll talk about this with this chapter and with the next one as well. But essentially what we have to understand is at the same time, Melville was writing this book. He was studying William Shakespeare, and so so it's in these chapters that we get to to get the influence of like a playwright, and so so uh, you're going to find out that chapter 26 is called Knights and Squires, and then chapter 27 is also called Knights and Squires, and uh, uh, essentially what's what's going on is is uh, he's, he's looking at the ship as you have a king on it, and then you have the knights and squires that are working for the king. So that's, that's really what he's dealing with. So he was probably reading one of the king's plays, you know, at this time. So, uh, so anyway, it's, it's, it's really, uh, in some ways, to me, it's just fascinating. I love every second of it, but when he wrote this, it did not impress people, and he almost went broke. <laughs> with with Moby Dick, because they did not understand what's he what's he doing with the play in the <laughs> towards the middle of the book. So so anyway, it's called Knights and Squires, but uh, uh, essentially, this this uh, first chapter it it starts out, and what Melville does is he gives us deep insight into the chief mate who is called Starbuck, and uh, uh, the, the first thing he says about. Starbuck, and, and this kind of makes him like the knight of knights, is it says, the chief mate of the Pequod was Starbuck, a native of Nantucket and a Quaker by descent. And so, so I think Grant and I, we were, you know, we've talked about this before that, you know, if you were going to be on a whale ship, you had to leave from Nantucket. And if you were going to be like, certainly the, uh, the uh, skipper of one of these ships, you had to be from Nantucket. And then if you were from, if you were Quaker descent, that was even like perfect, just perfect. <laughs> so, by the way, is he named? Is is the coffee shop named after 
Starbucks. Starbucks? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, ju- I just thought of that now. Oh, well. I don't know. I've never looked into it. Let's look into it. <laughs> thought maybe you'd know. <laughs> no. No, I know some things, but I don't know everything. <laughs> and sometimes I get irritated with Starbucks anyway. <laughs> sure. <laughs> There's only one thing I really like. There's a... The, uh, no, I can't even think about it because I didn't plan to talk about it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like iced mocha. Oh, yeah, that's my that's my favorite. I like with, the strawberries and cream one. Yeah, I like please, ice mocha. Please mo- don't make fun of me. <laughs> <laughs> I like iced mocha with a double shot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That'll wire you up. <laughs> All right. Um, I think Melville gives us a, a great view of Starbuck, and, and I think he's probably... Um, one of the most interesting characters, let's say, of the mates. The other ones are kind of humorous, but this guy is serious. It's, it says, uh, he was a long and earnest man, though born on an icy coast. He seemed well adapted to endure hot latitudes. And these were the great lines. These are great lines. His flesh being hard as twice-baked biscuit. <laughs> and so so if, if you go through that, I remember when I first read that, I thought, well, that's kind of a weird way to describe him. But then if you go on, I mean, if you really just kind of give him a break and just say, okay, I'll read this. If you go on, it says, transported to the Indies, his live blood would not spoil like bottled ale. And so, so I think for everybody out there that's reading this, you have to realize, you know, they've left Nantucket and now they're on their way to the southern latitudes where it's going to get a lot hotter. And so, so they're, they're, get, they're leaving the cold country and they're going where it's hotter. So he's analyzing Starbucks and saying, well, his blood's not going to boil when we get hot. You know, it's, 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 he's going to be fine. He goes on to say, he must have been born in some time of general drought and famine or upon one of those fast days for which his state is famous. So I'm going to have to ask my wife about that. My wife was raised Quaker. I didn't know they fasted very much. So, but Nantucket is definitely a Quaker state. So I'm going to, maybe it's the old time Quakers. Maybe it's just more than the average person since they're so religious. Yeah. So even fasting every few months would be a lot compared to most people, at least. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, I didn't even know about fasting until we came into God's church. So, well, I did know about it, but it was just a health fast. It wasn't for anything other than that. Um, he says, uh, I think he's giving us his, his age here. He says, only some 30 arid summers had he seen. Those summers had dried up all of his physical superfluousness. And if you look that word up, it means fat. <laughs> so the guy was not fat. <laughs> and it seems like all those 30 arid summers he was growing up, it was burning his fat away. And he goes on to say, but this, his thinness, so to speak, seemed no more the token of wasting anxieties and cares than it seemed the indication of any body bodily blight. So he was very thin. But it's, he said, look, he didn't get there because he was anxious or suffering from anxiety. Uh, it's just that, you know, some people have different, you know, physiques. They have different body types. It says he was no, by no means ill-looking. Quite the contrary, his pure, tight skin was an excellent fit and closely wrapped up in it and embalmed with inner health and strength like a revivified Egyptian. <laughs> so, so and anyway, he's telling us this is kind of a young, really vibrant guy who's who's happens to be thin, right? You know? And that's a long way to say it, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and if he is only thirty, he seems a lot older, as you're about to explain with the description of yeah. the way he thinks. Yeah. He's 
he's so cautious for some, like courageous and cautious at the same time for someone who's only 30 years old. You can just tell he thinks deeply about a lot of things and, and is not as carefree as you would expect a younger person to be. Yeah, yeah he's, he's definitely the opposite of Ahab. Right. Is we're going we're gonna to see that. This guy makes a lot of sense. Uh, he goes on to say, looking into his eyes, you seem to see there yet linger, lingering images of those thousandfold perils he had calmly confronted through life. So we just had Ben Franklin's autobiography, and he talked about a virtue of tranquility. This is Starbuck. He faced a lot of, a lot of rough times, but it didn't let it bother him. You know, there's some people who are like that. He said he's a staid, steadfast man whose life, for the most part, was a telling pantomime of mime of action. So, so essentially, though, Starbuck, he's, he thinks deeply, as you just said. He's in great health, but he's a man of action. You know, so he still knows how to do things. He knows how to work. But, you know, he's just not stupid. Right. <laughs> he's not going to take, you know, these chances. And he goes on to say that, that probably the reason for that is he does have, a, you know, a young wife and a child. And so he's going to be gone three years at a time anyway. So why do something stupid, you know? And so, uh, again, uh, it says there he was uh, conscientious for a seaman. And it, really, it's kind of funny. Uh, there's, there's a part of him that's funny. There's a part of it's not funny. But it said that he had a deep and natural reverence, and so I'm sure that means that he really had a reverence for the sea. But he said that the wild and waterly loneliness of his life did therefore strongly incline him to superstition. So, so it's like his life was like the watery world out there. If you remember, we talked about Queequeg wanted to see the world. And Bill Dad says, go to the end of the ship and look out. That's the end of the world. That's all you're going to see <laughs> That's all you're is going to water. See is water. <laughs> so, so here he says that uh, you know, his life is like the water, wild, watery loneliness. And so uh, uh, anyway, um, you know, he does have courage. I mean, we, we, we don't want to say he doesn't, but he's also intelligent with that courage. Uh, I think this is really interesting. Uh, there's a lot of... We've been covering this, at, you know, obviously in, in classes as well. And one of the students made a really good observation that I hadn't picked up, is how many times Melville mentions soul in the book. You know, and it's, you can pass by it really fast, but it's almost on every other page. Mm. You know, it says there that, that, uh, that you know, that there were outward portents. In, in other words, there are things that were happening and it's, it's not like he was scared by the physical things, but he was scared by the spiritual things. And, you know, it's like, uh, it's really kind of fascinating to what, what Melville is after. And I think, I think Melville, when he wrote this book, he was deeply disturbed spiritually. Mm. And he's yeah. hunting. He's hunting for answers. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And uh, this is such a complex character. I mean, he's described in just a couple pages here, but there are so many different dimensions to Starbuck. It's like he thinks courage is a commodity that you can use up. So you don't just be courageous out of nowhere when it's not practical or else you're, it's like getting rid of all of the food on the ship. Yeah. Like you, you have a set amount of courage to use 
when you have to use it and not just yeah. foolishly. I mean, that's that's someone who really thinks and is considering his family and is considering even the afterlife, it seems like, just because he had a brother who was, was killed. And yeah, I think it's, I think it even said it, his father too. So yeah, well, his father is definitely, this, yeah. sometimes it's a little hard to figure out what he's really saying, but, but definitely his father was disturbed that they couldn't recover his brother's bones, you know, and that's, that gets back to all the way back to father Mapple and you know, the, the, the sermon there. But the, the, the thing is, I think it's one of, the, one of the great lines here says, and at times these things bent the welted iron of his soul. And so this guy, he did have some real moral principles. And, but but I, I think it's funny, and down there at the bottom of that paragraph, he says, I will have no man in my boat, said Starbuck, who is not afraid of a whale. By this he seems to mean not only that the most reliable and useful courage was that which arises from the fair estimation of the encountered peril, but that an utterly fearless man is far more is a far more dangerous comrade than a coward. <laughs> I I've thought about that over and over and over again, and that is really true. Oh yeah, there's some experiences I've had where I was around someone who was way too fearless. And it, it's almost like you're in constant danger around somebody constant like danger. that yep. because they create danger out of nothing. Danger when it should just be a peaceful situation. Someone who does not understand very much and doesn't realize the consequences of certain things is going to be putting you in bad situations all the time. Oh yeah, I was you know from I'm from Pennsylvania and there's a lot of hills and a lot of. Uh, uh, drop off from the hills, you know, the cliffs and all that. And I was out in the woods with a, a few guys, I guess, maybe it was just one other guy. And there was a vine that they would swing out over this 200 foot drop. And, you know, I'm sweating just thinking about it right now because he challenged me to do it. And I did it when I was, when I swung out, you could see the railroad tracks 200 feet down. And I thought, <gasps> if this vine had snapped, I'd be dead. So there wasn't even water below. And there wasn't even that is water. that is crazy. I know. Wow. I'm, I'm sweating just thinking about it right now. So so you see, I should have been out there with a Starbuck. <laughs> well, ironically, Starbuck has someone else on the ship who is sort of like this, as we're going to talk about. Yeah. But there are some people who just don't understand the risks. No. Now to to fight a whale you have to understand there are going to be huge risks and and you have a basically a 50 percent chance of dying if you don't do everything right it's it's over yeah i I like that i like that part where he says for forethought starbuck i am here in this critical ocean to kill wells for my living and not to be killed by them for theirs (laughs) so he wants a fight where he has the advantage like it talks about not doing it after sundown uh not chasing whales but letting them come to you a little bit more uh fighting where you know that you have the chance to actually be victorious not just being crazy with your courage to where you you lose your life yeah that's right and it's it's like we know we we know we're going to run into a few other characters so i think that's funny Whales, they do want to kill you because they want to eat you. Right. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, I, I thought that was really, really very. It's really very interesting. And then um, uh, it's it's page one twenty six where it, where it talks about his spiritual terrors, and and that was kind of like his his uh, internal flaw, I think, with him. 
He goes on to say, and brave as he might be, it was that sort of bravery chiefly visible in some intrepid men, which while generally abiding firm in the conflict with the seas or winds or whales, or any of the ordinary irrational horrors of the world, yet cannot withstand those more terrific because more spiritual terrors, which sometimes menace you from the concentrating brow of an enraged and mighty man. And so, you know, he, he has some flaws in him. But I think it's interesting, and for everybody out there, this, this uh, page 126 in my version, but it's, it's uh, again, I think it's influenced by Shakespeare, but, but it's almost like you could say it's compared to Psalm 8, David, what King David wrote about, you know, what is man, you know, and uh, it, it says, uh, and it's like the middle of my page there, it says, men may seem detestable as joint stock companies and nations, knaves, fools, uh, and uh, murderers there may be. Men may have mean and meager fat faces, but man in the ideal is so noble and so sparkling, such a grand and glowing creature that over any ignominious blemish in him, all his fellows should run to throw their costliest robes. And so, so that's very similar to what Hamlet says. You know, what a, what a piece of work is man. And then he goes on, we don't need to discuss it all, but he goes on to talk about the nobility of the working man. And there's not a whole lot of nobility in America anymore. <laughs> because <laughs> very few people are working right now right and he even says as, as the as the narrator of the story that he's going to describe them in a more positive way so he's probably going to lean more to the positive side because he really admires a lot of the people around him and yeah. he sees the good in them and like you said the potential in them so he's even saying at the end of the chapter like Forgive me if I leave out some of the negative details about some of these characters, right, because right. I want I want people to remember them the best way possible. Right, right. So anyway, that's that's uh, that's uh, our chapter on on Starbuck, and so uh, um, I think we covered everything uh, that we needed to there. So let's go to the next chapter. And guess what the title is? <laughs> Knights and Squires. <laughs> it's amazing I didn't actually realize that while reading this. Like I, I, I think subconsciously maybe I did, but there are two chapters in a row with the same title, which, like you said before the show, only, only Melville could get away with doing that. <laughs> yeah, and Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so anyway, uh, uh, let's talk about Stubb. I'll let you talk about him a little bit. Um, now, Stubb is the second mate. And he's definitely not a Starbuck. No, he's what they call a happy-go-lucky. And so he just takes these life-and-death situations, and he's basically humming and singing to himself the whole time while the harpoons are flying around and, and the whales are bashing into the ship. And he's just relaxed as if he's on a stroll in the park. Yeah. just I, It's hard to even imagine a person like that. Yeah, he also says it's like, um, you know, when he's when he's chasing a whale it's like he's going out to dinner right. <laughs> with a bunch of friends <laughs> and so so anyway um you know he's he's easy going uh he's very calm but one of the things we don't want to, to pass over is is he's not a nantucketer right. and so so he doesn't have the class you know, the Starbuck has. Yeah, he's from Cape Cod. He's from Cape Cod. Shame on him. <laughs> Shame on him. <laughs> yeah. 
But it does say, though, he's neither craven nor valiant. And so, so uh, he, he uh, takes the perils as they, as they come with an indifferent air and says while he's while engaged in the most imminent crisis of the chase, toiling away, calm and collected as a journeyman joiner, engaged for a year, he's good-humored, he's easy and careless. He presided over his well-boat as if the most deadly encounter were but a dinner, and his crew all the invited guests. <laughs> I love that line. That seems to me like it's saying he really enjoys being with these guys on the ship, too. Like, like it's just... So- he probably considers the alternative, just being on land, living a boring everyday life. And here he is out at sea. He's battling monsters. And he's with, as the book describes, he's with some of the, the wildest, bravest men in the world <laughs> on a ship. So he's pretty happy about his situation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, is all of us know if you go out to dinner with really close friends, everything sits a lot better. Yeah. If, if you go out to dinner and you're not with the best of friends, it's like, oh, man. You're going to have indigestion before you leave. It's stressful. Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, um, it says, is it, he goes on to talk about here. I said, um, when close to well, um, in the very death lock of the fight, he handed his unpitying lance coolly and offhandedly as a whistling tinker his hammer. He would hum over his old rigadig tunes while f- flank and flank with the most exasperated monster. <laughs> so he's out there like humming and he's trying to kill this whale. Um, uh, uh, anyway, that there's just so much here that we can't get, we can't talk about it all. Well, he converted the jaws of death into an easy chair. It says <laughs> that, that might've been my favorite phrase of the entire <laughs> section we've read for these programs. Yeah. <laughs> just, just amazing how it's like, he's just lounging as there's this monster about to eat them yeah. right next to him. Yeah. And crush the boat. It can do everything. Yeah. He says, what perhaps with other things made stop such an easygoing, unfairing, Unfearing seamen so truly trudging off with the burden of life in a world full of grave peddlers, all bowed to the ground with their packs. What helped to bring about the most impious good humor of his, that thing must have been his pipe. For he, like his nose, his short black little pipe was one of the regular features of his face. So I think you talked about this in a former program that, uh, you know, that, that uh, he loved his pipe. In fact, he had like nine of them always full so that when he was when he was done for the day he'd go back to bed and they were already ready to go he could smoke all nine (laughs) it says he put his pipe in his mouth when he woke up before he even put on his his trousers (laughs) (laughs) so it says um it says i say this continual smoking must have been one cause at least of his peculiar disposition for everyone knows that as this earthly air whether ashore or afloat is terribly inflected, infected with the nameless miseries of the numberless mortals who have died exhaling it. And as in the time of cholera, some people go about with a camphorated handkerchief to their mouths. So likewise, all mortal tribulations, stubs, tobacco smoke must have operated as a sort of disinfecting agent. <laughs> I think you mentioned that before. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if that was, if they really thought that tobacco could do that for you or not. Yeah. It's an interesting hypothesis. Yeah. <laughs> I, I uh, think that's prior to cancer research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it might help with cholera while giving you other issues yeah. so they yeah. probably didn't understand that yeah I, I know i know that uh you know america 
made a lot of money from England from our tobacco. That was when we were colonies. So, all right. Now let's go. That's uh, that's all we get for stub, and then we have the third mate flask. So, so you know, Starbuck gets a whole chapter. These guys get a few paragraphs. You know, so so they're obviously not as important as um, you know Starbuck is. Well, it's and, it's interesting too here because uh, Starbuck is the chief mate, and then you have Stub the second mate, and Flask is or is third, and it goes in order of most wise to the threats and cautious to the very least, which Flask is. So uh, Stub is in the middle, where he's not seeking out trouble with the whales, but he's also not worried about it at all. Yeah. Um, Flask really goes after these whales yeah. and and he has no respect for their power he, he treats them as if they're like a, a mouse or a cat magnified mouse yeah or or, or at least a water rat <laughs> so flask it's it sounds like i mean in my opinion he's pretty ignorant yeah of what he's actually up against out and on the water remember now he's from martha's vineyard too so that's like that's even a step down from cape cod <laughs> <laughs> now martha's vineyard today is like full of millionaires, but at this point, remember, Nantucket, you had to be from Nantucket if you were gonna be <laughs> like God, you know? And and uh, certainly not from New Bedford. No. You notice New Bedford's not even mentioned right. in any of this chapter. But but I thought it was just so funny when, when he looks at a whale as a magnified mouse or at least a water rat, you know? So, so uh, he said this ignorant, unconscious fearlessness of him of his made him a little waggish in the matter, and that means he's just humorous, he's just funny all the time. So, in other words, for him, the matter of wells, he followed these fish for the fun of it, and a three years voyage around Cape Horn was a jolly joke that lasted the length of time. It said the carpenter's nails are divided into rotten nails and cut nails, so mankind may be similarly divided. Little Fask, Flask was one of the rot ones, he was made to slinch t- clinch tight and last long, and they called him King Post on board of the Pequod because he, uh, because in form he could be well-like into a short, square timber known by that name on the Arctic whalers. And so he's talking about different whale ships. Uh, now, I notice that uh, this isn't um, like chapter 26. Uh, he, he does praise them. He says, now these three mates, Starbucks, Stub, and Flask, were momentous men. And so it, I don't know if they achieved the level of a sawmate or not, you know. <laughs> but, but they're momentous men. It says, they it was who by universal prescription commanded three of the Pequod's boats as headsmen. In that grand order of the battle in which Captain Ahab would presently marshal his forces to descend on the whales, these three headsmen were as captains of companies. And so, so there, it's almost like, um, you know, it's it's like they're they're ancient knights. They're in these ancient. Ba- they're they're the battle. They're, they're the leaders of the battle. The With battle three front. very different leadership styles, and they all yeah. have their strengths and weaknesses. Each of those, right. each of those styles. So it's just interesting to to hear how each of them would approach these situations, yeah. whether with caution or laughter or with anger at the whale and just total fearlessness like yeah. flask I, I think one other thing you know that the with melville this is my own idea and i didn't even put it in our notes um basically it just all came together in my head 
but but it's almost like when you have knights and squires, you you got to think about it like a crusade, and you know a spiritual thing, and so Melville's always talking about the soul and spiritual things. So so uh, we'll come to this, and probably not this program or the next one, but we're going to come to it. And and he talks about the whiteness of the whale, and that's so misleading. You know, and, and uh, of course we know say the devil can come off as an angel of light, but he's evil, right. you know. And so, uh, so, so anyway, the, uh, the the next thing I'd like to get at just really quickly are the uh, the harpooners because every one of the squires has to have you know help, and uh, or every one of the knights I guess they have to have their squire. So, Queequeg we know was Starbucks um, squire, all right. And the next is Tashtigo, and he's an unmixed Indian from Gayhead, and he's also from Martha's Vineyard, and he is the uh, the squire for let's see who's the second mate Stub. Yes. All right. And then we have the third one. The third of the harpooners was Degu, and he was a gigantic coal black Negro savage with lion like tread. And he was an Aser, uh, uh, oh, I can, uh, so that's that was the guy. I mean, Asherus was also the biblical king of. Um, oh, we just even talked about that recently. Ancient uh, Persia. Persia. Yeah. That's right. He was ancient Persian king. So, uh, but anyway, Degu is six feet five <laughs> in his socks, and one of his best friends is um, uh, Flask. <laughs> he said when he and Flask st- stood together. They, uh, they, Flash looks like a chess piece <laughs> with the goo. <laughs> or oh, any white man in front of him look like a, a truce flag in front of a mighty fortress. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So, so I think we got through most of that. And uh, so that's all the time we have for today's program. Now, on our next program, Grant and I will begin discussing chapters 28 through 30. Now, you can buy Moby Dick at Amazon.com. You may also be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. I just found a delightful copy of, of Moby Dick on ABE Books. Now, you may also be able to find a copy in your local bookstore, and of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. So until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.